Good morning, church. If you would please turn it open to Acts chapter 4. Just a quick plug again for uh, Thursday night. Uh, Joe Bernard's a friend of our church. Uh, he is from Covington, but has been pastoring in Scotland over the past few years. And we, uh, he's in town, and we're able to, to benefit from his teaching. He has a resource just to ignite uh, personal devotion. So wanted to get that before you. I need to turn over to Acts chapter 4 now. All right, we're going to be looking at the first big section in this chapter as we continue our series on Acts and look at how uh, Jesus is using our witness to continue his ministry on this earth. And I hope I have been stirred. I mean, most of the time I'm preaching on myself for the, every message that I preach. I end up preaching to myself, so thanks for being here and supporting me. Um, but we, I hope there is a stirring in all of us to anticipate God's miraculous work in our lives and through our lives and his resurrection power to show up in our lives in unique and peculiar and particular ways, because that's what God's using to draw a crowd, so to speak, so we can give explanation to his glory. Now, what we're going to view today and learn about today is that the crowd that gathers a lot of times is not just in awe of something that God's done in our lives. It's because they don't like something that God's done in our lives. And that's what we're going to be introduced to uh, but God uses, and, and really this is the onset of persecution for the church, and God uses persecution, and I have that in the title, as a catalyst. It speeds forth our witness. It takes it farther and further than we could ever take it ourselves. Now, think about this, that Jesus, Jesus didn't leave a 20-mile radius from where he was born. Isn't that cool? But he's all over the world. He's all over the world because of his people, because of what started on the day of Pentecost and sending forth everybody, uh, really before that, the ripping of the curtain on uh, the day he died on Good Friday, ripping the, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, God's presence from the holy place in, from top to bottom, really signifying God's going out now. You don't have to come to him anymore. He's going out and he does it through us. And so may we today appreciate Sean's prayer because today our prayer is that God would would use us. Uh, what we don't want is the persecution to come. We, we'd rather do it another way. God, can you just miraculously heal me of something and then I can explain your great glory? That would be wonderful. But sometimes it's through opposition and trials and uncertainty that God gives us a place to witness for him. But he still says, trust me. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the, in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For, they, for all were praising God for what, had been, for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Lord, we ask for the blessing, the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, give us illumination. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Years ago, when Owen was around six, we were, uh, t- we were se- seeking to secure, I was, he wasn't doing much, he was watching me. I was securing these chairs to the top of our vehicle with straps. And Owen was looking at those, and he said, they're going to fall off. No, they're going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And so I tightened a little bit. I took his word for it and tightened it a little bit. And we're driving down the service road out of our neighborhood. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the chairs went flying. <laughs> Owen in the back seat. this is all I hear. Didn't even look back. Told you. <laughs> He knew exactly what happened. I thought of that because what Peter and John are experiencing, Jesus is standing there going, told you, this was going to happen. In John 15, he told them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And Paul tells Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said it was going to happen. And it happened. And I think, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know if they were conscious of the fact that, oh yeah, Jesus said this. Maybe they did. They spent a night in jail awaiting. They didn't know what was going to happen on the other side of that. We read that there was, they brought him before the council and there was an interrogation, but they didn't know what was happening. But yet, maybe they were comforted by the fact that they said, hey, Jesus said this would happen. 
Jesus was with them saying, I told you. But this passage also lets us in on how persecution comes about in our lives. One, one of the avenues that it comes about. But what we have to recognize is that when we are with Jesus, the world's going to get annoyed. The world's going to get greatly annoyed. It gives us also courage to be bold in our trust in Jesus as he continues his work through us on this earth. Now, to to break this passage up, uh, we're going to look at the characters. I just believe the Lord gave it this way in an outline. So look first at the religious, the rulers that are being named and also the disciples that are being uh, identified with Peter and John. But there's Jesus that's in this passage as well. And so we'll walk through those uh, three big headings. First, we have the religious rulers that we see in operation in this passage. We have priests, we have the temple captain who was in charge of the temple to make sure that riots didn't happen. If you read in the rest of the book of Acts, there are different places where Paul and Barnabas go, and Paul and Silas, they're preaching, and then they're always concerned about riots. You ever notice that as you read through Acts? Like people come by going, hey, we don't want to riot. Like What kind of... There's like kindling there all the time. Are these like really amped up people all the time looking for, well, we kind of live in that world too, huh? There's something next to be outraged about. Just need to be outraged. I'm just so outraged. Why are you outraged? I have no idea because they're outraged. I'm, 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 we're all outraged. About what? I don't know. I'm just mad at everything. Well, the temple captain, maybe we need some temple captains in our culture. Hey, take it easy. Why don't you just sit down, have a glass of water, take a few deep breaths, it's going to be okay. Maybe we need more of those. We have the temple captain, we have the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a minority party of the religious elite. You had the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were all about the rules. We have Jesus talking to them all the time, saying, look, all of your rules and traditions are clouding and blinding you from who God is. And you're, you're actually you're not helping the people that you think you're helping because you're giving them more rules that are blinding them to God's grace. But we have the Pharisees who are also there, but the Pharisees were the ruling party within the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So when, it's, when they all get together, the Sadducees are in control. They're in control of the temple guard, but they're also in corroboration with the Romans to make sure that things stay okay. But usually that meant so they stay in power. They were, they were chummy with the Romans so they could stay in power and not lose their status as rulers. But I mentioned last week in a different passage uh, that the, the, Pharisees, the Sadducees, rather, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or any resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in evil spirits. There was no spiritual realm. So in, in a way, they were the deists before the deists who a lot of our founding fathers of this country were deists. They just, God set it in motion, just take care of it. But what we also find in this, and what you find in church history, in the couple thousand years of church history, is that the persecution that came to the church usually started with the religious people, not the secularites, not the atheists. It started with those who feel we need to do this mission for God, and so we're going, even our country, the Puritans, sadly, we, we cherish a lot of their doctrine and we are helped by reading the, the Puritans, but they were mean to Baptists. 
They persecuted Baptists because they said, no, you've got to baptize infants. What are you doing? Baptizing a whole person that's old in the water. And they would arrest them and beat the Baptists. Crazy. Drove the Baptists out of Massachusetts. They all kind of ended up... Pennsylvania was the most docile place. That's why you have a lot of different... Air, a lot of different uh, um, belief systems ended up in Pennsylvania. But the Baptists actually moved out of Massachusetts and went to Rhode Island in Providence. First Baptist Church started Brown University. And so all those, those Ivy League universities, they were all started by religious groups. Harvard was started by the Puritans. Uh, uh, I digress. I like that stuff. I don't know if you do. We can talk afterwards if you like. But my point is this. It's the religious people who think they're doing something for God that will persecute the church first, persecute believers first. And we see that happening here. But we first see that they were greatly annoyed. That's that's just wonderful that Luke, who's writing the back of Acts, would say that. Just in common language. Why were they annoyed? Because their authority and control was being threatened. And because the disciples were preaching this Jesus who was resurrected. Now, unbelievers will inevitably become annoyed when we consistently live under Jesus' authority and rule over our lives. But here's how it happens. You might have family members that just might be annoyed with you, and you don't know why they're annoyed with you. They might not know why they're annoyed with you, and it's just this spiritual opposition that you feel. Just understand that that is a result sometimes of just the fact that we're living under the authority of Jesus and they're trying to live under their own authority and you don't support their own authority. You're living under another authority that actually condemns them because they know they're not right with that authority. So there's annoyance. And then the council that meets, this, uh, the Sanhedrin is what they was, that was called. It was made up of 71 members of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees were the smaller of the group, but they were in charge of that group. They had concentric semicircles set up, and they put Peter and John right in the middle. Now, they waited till the next day because night court was illegal. Now, remember... They brought Jesus in his final hours to these same people. And when was his trial? At night. It was illegal. They, you talk about rush this through when nobody's looking. They wanted to rid themselves of Jesus. And we have, interestingly, a high priestly family that's there. There's some nepotism taking place. There's Annas who was... He was the high priest back when Jesus started his ministry, but he's, he's more like a high priest emeritus. He's always there. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest that year. So we have Annas and Caiaphas, and we have John and Alexander, of whom we have no idea why they're mentioned. But it's not good that they're mentioned. Somebody who was reading this knew, oh, John and Alexander were there too? Whoa. We don't know what that means. But it's a high priestly family. They were ruling, but they were trying to keep their rule. And it's threatened now by these disciples preaching a resurrection. So they bring them in front of them, and there's an interrogation. By what power? What name? Who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? Who gave you permission to do this? Because we certainly didn't give you permission to do this. They're only thinking of their authority because theirs is being challenged. But you remember, this was the same question that was asked to Jesus. 
by the Pharisees and I think some of the Sadducees. In Mark 11, we read, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was, he was walking in the temple, that was Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. They said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this, this authority to do them? Jesus says to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Like they had enough discernment to recognize, well, we rejected John. But what shall we say? From man? For they were afraid of the people. For they all held John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What was Jesus getting at? They were their own authority. And they looked for the credentials and the affirmation of their authority from the control they had over people. Jesus is not coming with a control. He's coming with life. He's coming with freedom. So rather than clamping down and making sure that everybody is oppressed by, their, by his authority, he is freeing them. And the ruling authority doesn't have, an, it doesn't have any idea. The earthly authority has no idea how to understand that. But they ask him, by what authority? What name? Who gave you permission to do this? Now there's a response the unbelievers in this story have toward Jesus' power and authority that's displayed in the disciples. The first is a reliance on education. They recognized in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Unbelievers have nothing but education to lean on. And so they saw Peter and John. They, they're uneducated. They didn't have a rabbi. Well, they had Jesus who was their rabbi. We didn't like Jesus, but he, we want somebody who has a, a good rabbi. Now, probably in this midst is Gamaliel, who is the rabbi to the apostle Paul, Saul at that time. Saul could have been in this meeting. So some people would say, how does Luke know what they said when they sent Peter and John out and they conferred with one another? Well, Paul may have been in this venue because he was serving under Gamaliel. So there's this reliance on education. Now, we, we want to be educated, but we don't find the answer in education. We, we learn how to read so we can read the scriptures. We learn math so we can understand the glory of God as he keeps the cosmos together. It's amazing. We learn history so we can see how man constantly looks to himself for salvation rather than to Jesus. What other subjects are there? Science. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. We study science to find and discover God. That's how Isaac Newton discovered gravity. He knew God put something there and he wanted to discover it. So we are for education, but we don't see the answer in education. Does that make sense? So we, we want to grow and we want to challenge our minds. And sometimes, sometimes just learning is hard, but we don't give up on it. We ask God for the grace to keep going. Now, within this, this religious elite interacting with Peter and John, they never refuted the resurrection. They came together saying, hey, we don't think there's a resurrection. You're preaching a resurrection. They never made that the issue. 
They made secondary things the issue because they could not refute the resurrection. These were the same men who condemned Jesus to die, the same men who knew his body is missing. This is only a few weeks time frame from Jesus rising from the dead. They're going, "Uh uh-oh, we got a bigger problem on our hands than we thought. They couldn't refute the resurrection. Just like today, no one can refute it. People try. Even if it's just, well, it's just uneducated to think that somebody would rise from the dead. Education, reliance on education. Reliance on, if I can't, if I can't uh, figure it out with my five senses, then it didn't happen. That's just weird to say. It's, it's illogical to say something like that. I mean, the whole thing is, can you, can you figure out love with your senses? Can you touch love? Can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you smell it? Can you feel it? It's just, but, oh, somebody smart said that, so I guess it must be true. No, let's, let's think about it. Let's think. But the resurrection is never refuted in church. We have confidence. We have the truth. Jesus is alive. And you know what? He's not dead. He's never going to be dead. He was dead for those three days, but he rose in order to give us life. So that means everything that he said is true. That means this Bible is true. Because Jesus pointed at this as the truth. And he pointed at himself as the truth. And so we have confidence. How do we know this is the way? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's how we know. So, which typically happens when unbelievers can't refute the resurrection, they resort to intimidation. They couldn't deny what happened to the crippled man. They couldn't deny what happened to Jesus being raised. So they resort to intimidation. And this is the cultural tactic today. Our culture loves intimidation. And it's mockery. Ha <laughs> ha! Dumb! What am I dumb about? And we have to learn to ask questions. What, what, what does that mean? Why am I dumb? Because it, Christians are on the defensive so much thinking that we have to give all this proof to something that we say when somebody asks us why. But we can very gently and graciously ask the question to unbelievers. Why do you pursue life the way that you do? Why do you believe what you believe? Do you believe that God is there? Do you believe he's distant? Do you believe, why do you believe he's distant? And asking good questions really is a good way to find something out. But since these religious leaders resorted to intimidation and our culture resorts to intimidation, it proves to us there is nothing new under the sun. And so we don't have to be intimidated. We can be caring. And so we have the religious elite going on in this passage. We also have the disciples, and particularly Peter, because he is, he's speaking up for both he and John. But there, there's some cool things happening, I see, in Peter's life. The first, in verse 4, I, when, I, when I read this, those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. What is that word? That number 5,000, what does it bring up in your mind? Feeding of the 5,000, right? What did Jesus tell Peter? You're catching fish right now, but one day you're going to catch men. Isn't that awesome? You've become a fisher of men. It's Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching in, the, in Solomon's portico. And now Peter's preaching to the religious elite. And guess what? He's fishing men. God's using him for this huge influx. And now Peter is standing before the same men 
that he watched Jesus stand before while he was in the courtyard and denying that he even knew Jesus. He's standing before the same people. Sean brought this out in the Easter message back in April. Why? Because of resurrection life, that's why. Because of the presence of the Spirit. And we hear now that he is filled with the Spirit. That, I don't think that's a reference to he, he had the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. It left. He needed to be refilled in order to do some cool work. That, that's how the Old Testament, the, the Spirit's operation, I think, happened in the Old Testament. The Spirit came upon, and we read that. The Spirit came upon the prophets. The Spirit came upon David. And it was, it was for a specific task. Well, now that we have the Holy Spirit in us in, in fullness, I trust, because uh, of, of when we repent and trust Christ for salvation, we don't depend on our own works, we repent of our sins and trust Him for salvation, we have the Holy Spirit in fullness. We don't, we don't have 95% of the Spirit, and we need a little more. No, we have 100% of the Spirit of the living God residing in us. But I do think there are still moments where we feel, I uh, think about like an overflowing of the, the living waters in us, where God gives us grace and power for a specific task. And that task is a lot of times witnessing, giving reason to the hope that we have in Christ. So I do think this was a, a special enhancing, a, a, a manifesting, a bringing forth of what was already residing within Peter fully and completely for this specific witnessing task. And then we see that Peter is bold. Again, he tells these men. This is a far cry from a few weeks ago when he was saying, I don't know that man, and calling down curses because he wanted to distance himself from Jesus. Now, this is who, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. That's boldness. And this, these are not, I don't think he is doing this uh, to be antagonistic or to start a fight. He's just standing on the truth. But there, there's a truth to the responsibility that all of us bear in sending Jesus to the cross. These are the same men that condemned Jesus by bringing false witnesses. And now they have three witnesses here, Peter, John, and the healed man, that they can't refute. And Peter reiterates the resurrection to them. God raised him from the dead. Now, this is also what Jesus told the disciples would take place in Luke 21. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering up you, up, you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Oh, don't we, don't we meditate a lot? Don't we recoil sometimes from sharing the gospel because we just don't know what to say? He's saying, settle this. You don't know what to say. (laughs) Trust me. Look, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. I know there's been times when you share the gospel with somebody and you're going, how did I know that? How did I know that scripture? How did I know this? Because the spirit comes in that moment. But there's a joy that happens in us, right? When we're obedient to that, we recognize, God, you did something awesome in that moment. Just like he gave Moses a mouth. He totally promised Moses. He had to give him a mouthpiece in Aaron as well. But he said he gave him the mouth and the wisdom. Look, 
I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's promise for us. We don't need to recoil. We don't need to run from our witnessing opportunities because Jesus is with us. I loved Jade up here with Sean because, here, standing in front of people is one of, still one of the biggest fears that people have on the planet because they don't like looking at eyeballs. It's just kind of like, <laughs> everybody's looking right now. Well, Jade, if she was alone, you think she'd be twirling around, looking if she was alone, she'd be very aware of everybody else. But why was she free in this moment? Because she was with her daddy. We are free in Christ because he's with us. So we can be settled and at peace and trust him. And now Peter is obedient to God. He tells them, look, you're giving me this threat. Verse, verse 19. Whether it is right in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He says, look, you can judge what you think we're supposed to do, but here's what we know we have to do. We have to be obedient to speak of what we have seen and heard. What have they seen? They saw Jesus. What have they heard? All the truth that he shared. We too see Jesus in our lives, his, his resurrection power shows up in moments that convince us you really are alive and you're with me, God. You are with me, Jesus. Now, their greatest, Peter and John's greatest credential wasn't education, it was they had been with Jesus. And that's what was recognized. But we also have believers who are the disciples that are being gathered into. No matter what persecution comes, the word of God still goes forth saving men and women and children. It still goes forth. No man can stop the gospel of Jesus. We want to participate with it, but no man can stop it. And now, even through these threats, the church is growing. Why is it growing? Because the Savior is being exalted. And we see Jesus in this passage. He is the healer of the lame man who, saying that he was over 40 years old, was twofold. One, he had an incurable disease. His parents had to have tried any medical, medical remedy, naturopathic remedy, anything that would be out there. They tried it. But it also means he's over 40, that his witness of himself stands. Everybody has to believe him. Jesus did that in him. But this is also, Peter said, the Christ that God raised from the dead. He is the stone of salvation. Now, it's Psalm 118 that says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief stone, the capstone cornerstone. But Peter turns to these men and says, you rejected the cornerstone of salvation. But he is the stone of our salvation and he is a savior. How beautiful this phrase is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. But that beautiful, sweet, glorious name, Jesus. Uh, last, two Wednesdays ago, during the men's the pilgrims group, uh, I remembered a story, and I, I remembered it incorrectly. I had to go back and look at it. I thought it was an officer, but actually there was a pastor on the Titanic and when he was a widower, and he had a six-year-old daughter with him, he was going to, he's coming over to the United States to preach in Chicago at D.L. Moody's church. 
Um, the pastor's name is John Harper. And when the Titanic was going down, he put his daughter in one of the lifeboats and sent it off. And he actually had permission to get in a lifeboat because he was a widower, because the, his daughter didn't have a parent left. He was the only parent. But he chose not to, and he was wearing a life vest, and he was going around the Titanic, and he was witnessing to people in that moment. He's telling them to believe on Jesus and they'll be saved. One man who was refuting him and, and mocking him, John Harper took off his life vest and here, here, sir, you need this more than I do. In that moment, just giving everything, he's in the water holding to the wreckage with everybody else, holding to the pieces of the floating Titanic that were still the remnants that were there that you could float with. And they were, he was calling out to anybody who would hear, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And how do we know that happened? Because there was a woman who several years later recounted when, she, when, when John floated over to her and he was dying, said to her, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's all he said. She got back, the a boat came, he, he slipped into the water so she knew he died and the boat came back, got her she survived and told this story later on and she said, I was John Harper's last convert because she watched him die. But he wasn't giving the full-fledged thing. He was, he was saying, the name of Jesus is all you need to be saved. The name of Jesus, this precious, wonderful name. You know, Jesus is the Greek form of Yeshua, which means to save, deliver, rescue. And the name of Jesus represents the totality of his perfect life, his substitutionary death in our place, and his resurrection life that now resides in believers through the Spirit. He is that name, and his name represents the authority and the banner over our lives that covers us. It's, it's not just a banner, it's a, it's a covering, it's an awning that we exist under. Living for Jesus as believers under his authority, under the banner of his love. And, and there's somebody else in this passage, and it's us. It's the generations. It's the generations that came before us. It's the generations that will come after us. We play a part in that. We play a part to live under the name of Christ. We live uh, under that name as an example, but we also witness to that name, calling out for everybody around us to be Saved, But we know that that proclamation will come amidst persecution. But it also inspires us to trust Jesus for all of our witnessing opportunities. So can I ask this in closing? Let's ask for opportunity this week to share the gospel with somebody. How does that make you feel in that moment? Little, little, whoa, 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 little recoil. Well, I'm not sure. Jeff, can I set up a meeting that you can talk to the person that I want the gospel shared with? No, you. God's done something in your life. So can we ask for that? And also the faith to look for it. Not to, look, this is what we're determining beforehand. I have no idea what I'm going to say. That's how we determine. And we're going to watch for God to do some amazing things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, will you please put somebody in our minds right now that we will look to share the gospel with. Father, I pray that you would provide an excitement for us and the faith would rise in our hearts 
And then we would also be ready and willing and available to talk to the people that we maybe don't have in our minds right now. Give us eyes. Give us your eyes to see uh, somebody at checkout counter. Somebody who we can see distress on a face. Somebody that, that we can interrupt the flow of our lives in order to bring the flow of grace into somebody else's life. God, would you do this for your glory? Would you do it for our good as well? Show up for us in great and glorious ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, church. Let's be reminded, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. May God bless us.